Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Listeners to episode ninety-seven of the Ad Nauseum Podcast. Jeff, what was that? What was that? What was that? It was eerie. That was eerie. I recognized it though. Did, yes. you, did you recognize it? Um, some dance to remember, some dance to forget. Now I would say. It. Right, exactly. Those were the opening strains of Oh no, don't say it yet. Oh, can't say it? No. Wait, wait, maybe wait. the audience wants to stab it with their steely knives, but they just, just can't kill the beast? That's correct. Okay, exactly. Right. Um, Last thing I remember. Yes. You were, I was you were heading for the door. That's right. Uh, trying to find the passage back to the place you were before? That's correct. Right. <laughs> Relax, said the watchman. You can check out... Oh, no, I messed it so, up. Uh, we are, we're eager... We, uh, Program to, to receive. receive. You can check out any time. audience like. is not going to like this. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I consider myself Johnny Pop. You do? Yeah, and yes. I, hear I hear him stumbling all over those lyrics. All over the lyrics. Yeah, exactly. Nobody knows what the warm smell of uh, colitas are. Did you know what, that? Rising up through the air? That's right. right. Yeah. To this day, nobody knows what Don Henley was talking about. No, not even Don himself. No, but what are we talking about? Uh, now now you got me worried about Don Henley that he's going to come after me. It's likely. It's a, it's a childhood fear I've had since, mm-hmm. since childhood. Don Henley versus Johnny Pop. <laughs> but we're talking about the underworld. That's right. We're talking about Aeneas's journey down into... Into Hades, into, That's right. into Dis, as the Romans called it. That's yes. correct. Yep. And so Hotel California is meant to set the mood with some kind of eerie, mysterious, ethereal, um, what am I looking for? Ambiance? Ambiance, right. Can so, ambiance be ethereal? Um, in that song, it, it certainly is. All right. And many people interpret that song to be kind of a, a metaphor for... A, you know, a, a hellscape, as mm-hmm. it were, right? Um, Pink champagne on ice, I, right? Exactly. All the all the uh, the allures of of kind of material and physical temptation, but it's a trap. Yes, it reminds me of those terrible Seven uh, Up commercials from the late eighties. Which ones were those? I don't know. Isn't it cool in pink? Oh, when they went with like, the cherry Seven Up. That's correct. Oh, I do remember those. Right, exactly. That was a kind of torture to watch those. Yeah, I didn't. I, I hated sitting through those. Mm-hmm. Now I'm angry about that. <laughs> Usually, I'm the angry one. I know what's happening here. We're both uh, angry, but this is a podcast, so let's get down to business let's because do it. we are podcasting professionals. And as I say before every episode, I am so excited to do this. I I cannot wait. That's I, right. I've been waiting all day to do this. Mm-hmm. But no, before we can, are you doing all right? I'm okay. You're okay? Yes. You know, dealing with the huffle and puffle of life. And yes. then you come down here into the Vomitorium, Vomitorium South, located in the basement of a generous publisher who yep. loans this space to us. And then you've got to kind of flip a switch, right? You've got to um, focus yep. on the classical world and presenting something to an audience so that they can enjoy the literature that has brought us untold delight. It's a it's a responsibility. That's right. Yeah. It's a heavy mantle weighing upon my slender shoulders. <laughs> How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling similar. I feel the same way. You, you, you walk down the steps and you, you get in the seat, you, you put the headphones on, 
And it's go time. It's go time. Right, that's it. So let's step off the ledge and let's see All what right, happens. All right, let's do it. Yep. So do we have a shout out this week? No, we no. don't have one. Right. We're out of shout outs. No. So again, listener, get those get those emails in. We want yeah. to hear from you. Is there anybody out there listening? I think there is. The numbers show that there are. Okay. But they're just too shy. It Could it be your mom again it downloading? Could, it could be. 40 to 50 times? Possibly. Possibly. All right. But uh, hey, do you got an opening quote for us? I do have an opening quote. And, and this, this comes this, from uh, Mr. Brooks Otis. The legendary Brooks Otis. Yeah, he's this, our, been our go-to man. This guy is on fire. From his work, Virgil, A Study in Civilized Poetry, published by the University of Oklahoma Press, dating back to the 1960s, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Or as they say in Latin, ni falor. Nice. Thank you. He says, the second half of the Aeneid, this is page number 311, the second half of the Aeneid is strikingly different from the first. That's kind of obvious, right, Jeff? Right. The change of model, the substitution of Iliad for Odyssey, is but a symptom of another and deeper change. The psychological and subjective emphasis of the first six books is gone. Now, this, I think, Jeff, is a highly insightful interpretation. Okay. This is why people don't really like the second half as much. It's not modern. Hmm. To continue, Aeneas is no more engaged in inner struggle, in the hard task of his re-motivation, but in a great war with very tangible human opponents. His pietas has been established. We now see it demonstrated in action. In this sense, the Iliadic Aeneid is the obvious climax of the epic. Aeneas's struggle with the Latins, this of course is the people group that he must subdue right. in order to for- forge the Roman race, is a made is a excuse me a maius opus right Latin for big task bigger task and with it a maior rerum ordo a new world order mm-hmm. begins, but in another sense the Iliadic Aeneid contains or seems at first sight to contain an element of anticlimax. We have been so prepared for the great test in Latium, so assured of Aeneas's success, so instructed in the designs of fate, that the actual result seems all but discounted in advance. The interest of the hero's bitter personal struggle for self-mastery is, for at least many moderns, far greater than that of the tangible narrative of a battle whose outcome is certain. Hmm. And then finally, nor does Virgil seem to make it easy for us. He now presents Aeneas as a quite static figure, unchanging and foursquare in his pietas, while it is his opponents, Turnus above all, but also Lausus, Camilla, and even Mezentius, who struggle with pathetic heroism in a most unequal combat with fate. Nor does Virgil share with Homer any particular zest for battles or the incidents of battle. He does not, in fact, hide his aversion to war or his strong preference for peace. Hmm. Very interesting. Yes. Yeah. That captures a lot, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I mean it reminds me of, you know, in terms of its similar, similarities to the Iliad, is that many readers of the Iliad find um, Hector, to be the more sympathetic, Absolutely. the more three-dimensional character. And, and Achilles is kind of the, the two-dimensional monster, at least, at least until the very end. Definitely. And so I think maybe we could see Aeneas kind of his staticness. Well, he's falling into that Achilles role. You're right. And we find Turnus, by default, a much more interesting character. That's right. right? I do wonder, though, if ancient audiences would have had the same sort of predilections that we do. Hmm. In other words, would they have found Hector, the obvious loser, would they have hmm. found him as appealing as Achilles? Achilles is very off-putting because he's a killing machine. Right. Uh, so similarly, maybe it's the desire for psychological internal struggle, so- something uh, cultivated in people by the reading of 19th century novels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? If, right. You, if you're going to read Les Mis or anything by Dickens or 
you know, novels like that, they're all about internal psychological struggle. Right. Right. It's not really very ancient. Right. Uh, so maybe then, you know, they like Hector for the same reason that they like Aeneas, a modern audience, because there's internal conflict. Internal conflict. No, that's a really, that's a really interesting point, right? So it's, um, Otis is suggesting at some level that after book six, it's not, it's not really all about Aeneas anymore. No. Right? He's fixed in some ways. That's and, right. And now it's the task at hand. Yes, his character is developed. And I think why I find this persuasive is because look at the different conflicts that he had in the first six books. Uh, Creusa, mm-hmm. the conflict with his father and Chises, or the development at least. Ascanius, mm-hmm. his son, and then of course most of all, Dido. Dido. Yeah. Those things are all out of the way now. He's a complete person. Yeah, right. So, um, I mean, Otis, is he suggesting implicitly that an, an ancient audience wouldn't have found the second half to be anticlimactic or i mean i I could i mean he's saying that part of the problem with the second half is that you know it's finishing up a foregone conclusion right i think that's part of it i think he's also saying that it's a modern audience modern audience that that, finds it largely anticlimactic but he also suggests and i want to pursue this quite a bit as we seek to interpret and understand this fascinating book uh, in the epic as a whole that virgil himself is quite ambivalent to war and in Mm. fact he has an aversion to it right right And so he doesn't take delight in the battle sequences like Homer obviously does. He does, certainly in in the the language that he uses. I mean, I think you could certainly make a a case that the Iliad, uh, um, on the whole, is not pro-war. No, it's not a celebration of war. I think he's interested in answering the question is, if if this is what you do, how do you do it heroically? How do you do it to maintain your teammate and your arete? Uh, Of course. Right? And so um, I think Homer's interested not in... A celebration of war, you know, as war. Right. Where Otis is suggesting that Virgil has an aversion to the whole thing. Exactly. Okay. He's, a, right. he's a uh, Pacific poet. Yes. If I could just read a little bit more from 314. Please. Very short. The Roman, though he may lack the arts of Greek culture, has one great art that is his very own, that of ruling the peoples in one empire and of imposing on them the habit of peace by conquering the haughty and sparing the humble. So this mm. anticipates uh, lines 847 and following in this very book, when Anchises, here in book six, Anchises is talking to his son Aeneas, and he says, these will be your arts. The Greeks will surpass in marble and sculpture. We'll talk about this again yeah. in science and mathematics. But it's your job to parkera subjectis et debellara superbos. Spare the downtrodden and crush, you know, grind to a pulp the haughty. Well, it's, it's kind of, it reminds me of, of Julius Caesar's, um, the notion of clementia, right? His, exactly. Right. You offer, you offer an olive branch uh, to those who will bend the knee. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. everybody else gets the... Too bad. Yeah, too bad. The boot. Mm-hmm. So uh, Otis says, this ideal, to, to connect this to Homer, mm-hmm. is thoroughly unhomeric. Mm. And on the whole, it's un-Greek. It is certainly true for Homer that the chief virtue, you mentioned arete, Jeff, Mm -hmm. the chief virtue, the arete of the hero, is shown in his aristei, his great feats on the battlefield. The question of the justification of war, the opportunity for the aristei, is not raised except in the most particular and superficial sense. Hmm. So according to Otis, that's the distinction between the Homeric world and the world that Virgil is building. Okay. The Homeric world doesn't try to justify war. It's just a reality. Right. It's there. You can't escape it. Right. And that's why often I think that, like, certainly to, to modern audiences, but even for, maybe from an ancient point of view, you know, the the impetus for the for the Trojan War, the the abduction of Helen, right? It's really the, the what brings everybody to war is the is the complaint of one man, 
right? Menelaus right. has lost it, but everything of the war kind of follows. And so, right. you know, you take a step back, that justification for this massive war, it's absurd. Extremely slender. Absurd, right? Ab- absurd is a better word. Right. And, and in, um, in the Aeneid, of course, the, the purpose of this war is to lay the foundations for the greatness to come. Exactly. Right? The has, Pax Augusta in it particular. Has a, it has a telos that's way more weighty than, than one guy getting his wife back. That's right. Yeah. As Aristotle says, the purpose of, pe- of a war is peace. Yes. And so Virgil, you know, writing... 800 years after Homer, in this respect, has a very different view of how these things should play out. That's really interesting. In all my readings of the Aeneid, I've never thought about it along these particular lines, hmm. right? I, I often see the similarities in the battle scenes you know, right. to, to the later books in the Iliad, but I've never thought about what is Virgil, uh, how, is he, how is he depicting war, how is, right. how is he showing kind of a, um, a queasiness about all yes. this, right? Yes, very well said. Mm-hmm. When we get to the whole end of the whole epic, whenever that is... <laughs> We're going to look at a number of different interpretations, uh, something I've used in my mythology classes whenever we wind up the Aeneid. Uh, C.M. Baura uh, has a nice interpretation of this. C.S. Lewis, in his preface to Paradise Lost, Hmm. uh, talks about um, Virgil's view of war and human destiny. So we're going to revisit and uh, touch on these themes once again. Excellent. Yeah. But if I could mention just one more notion here from Ovid, which is a nice contrast. Mm -hmm. Because I really like to bring Ovid into this conversation whenever I can, because he's so entertaining. Of course. I think it's in the Battle of the Lapiths and the Centaurs, in, uh, of course, the Metamorphoses. Whenever he describes battle, he quickly lapses into parody. He turns it into the absurd. And there's one really memorable phrase or, or episode, incident, where I think one of the Lapis, one of the Centaurs whacks one of the Lapis in the nose, and his brains come out through his nose like cottage cheese. <laughs> See, that's the epic simile, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think Ovid's doing a third thing there, right? Homer takes war as the steady state of existence. It's just there. Mm-hmm. And you got to be great at it if you if you have the capacity. Right. Thersites doesn't, Achilles does, yeah. right? For Virgil it's can't we get rid of war? We have to find a, a rational moral justification for its existence. Yeah. And for Ovid, what is that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So Ovid, Ovid is Quentin Tarantino. Exactly. So his his violence is so over the top as to be cartoonish. Exactly. Right? And that's its own kind of... It's Tom and Jerry. Yeah, Tom and Jerry, exactly right, which is its own kind of like... I just... Um, so I'm teaching a film class right now. We, we just watched um, Tarantino's first film, Reservoir Dogs, hmm. which is... Do you want to ask if I've seen it? Have you seen it? Of course not. Okay, right. Well, it's full of the usual Tarantino things, lots of profanity okay. and lots of violence, Right. right? And um, I've seen the film a few times, and I, what I walked away from that is that, you know, one of the questions I asked the class, like, what's the purpose of the violence? You That's know, a good what, question. What's the message here, right? What do they say? And, well, they were kind of all over the map, but it really struck me as just how nihilistic it was, right? That, mm. that, that, that Tarantino is trying to say by having the violence be so over the top, he's trying to in some way say, look how meaningless all of this is. It's really mm. bleak. How meaningless the violence is or how meaningless his story or everything the, how, the, how the violence uh, purports the the characters in, in the film purport to use violence to get to particular in, ends to do the ends but those ends are so I devoid see. of meaning that the violence just makes the the nihilism you know, right. extra spicy nihilism okay right? <laughs> so i think i mean and he, i think tarantino will often use kind of that to a comic effect too and i think that's where the connection with ovid is right? okay he, he's um he's, like you said he's he's almost sometimes doing a parody of a, right. a homeric battle scene absolutely yeah yeah. Or another example, um, not Tarantino, but Looney Tunes. Yeah. When, when Elmer Fudd 
points the shotgun at Daffy Duck, right? And his bill goes round and round his oh, head. Spins around his head, right? 30 right. times, and he straightens it back into place and is quite uh, perplexed and indignant at what has happened to him. Right. It's absurdity. Right. And I remember as a kid thinking, how funny this is. I loved it. Yeah. I loved it exactly. They don't, they don't make them like that no, no more. No, they don't. That's, yeah. that's Ovid. That right? is Ovid, yeah. Uh, but it's not either Virgil or Homer. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. So we've got a lot to look out for in, we these, do. in these last uh, six books. But, but we, we're talking about book six. We are. We're not we, there. But we're setting up book six yeah. by setting up the Iliadic books six through 12. Um, books six through 12? Yes. Seven through 12. Seven through 12. Yeah, we've yeah. got to finish six here. But six gets us ready for um, the Iliadic seven through 12. Yep. Which is where we're headed next. That's right. How do we get into the underworld, Jeff? Should we start off with a few lines of Latin as we begin our trek down below? Yeah, you want to start just right at the, at the beginning? Let's do that. Okay, why don't you do some Latin? I've got Lombardo's translation. I'd love to. So this is starting in line one. Sic fatur lacrimans classi quem mitit habenas, et tan del boiacisco mardrad labitur oris, ab veretunt pelago pro rostum denta tenaki, ancora funda bat na wis et litora curvae. Very nicely done. Thank you, Jeff. Right. So just to put a geographical context yes. here. So they're sailing from Sicily. Uh, not that far. They make their way. This is their first landing on the boot of Italy. That's right. They're going to go northeast. Yes. Remember when we were in... Were you in Capri with me? Uh, I don't believe I was. I've been to Capri, but not with you. I was in Capri with uh, Dr. Bratt. Okay. And I remember looking out from Capri to try to spot Sicily with my eyes, having never been there. Yes. It's way too far. Couldn't see it. But I just knew in my imagination there Sicily loomed large on the horizon. This is where they would have gone, yeah. right? Right up past Capri mm-hmm. and landed where? Or not uh, Not past Capri. It's, it's Kumai is south of here, is that right? It's a little bit. It's south of Naples, uh, okay. uh, south of the Bay of Naples. But it's in, that, it's in that general area. Okay. Yeah. And so, yes, they land at, at, at Kumai. Have you, I was there with uh, another friend of ours. Have you been to Kumai? I have not been there. It's great. With whom did you visit? Um, I was with, there with Young. Young Kim. Yep. All right. So tell us about Kumai, or I guess the Italians say Kumai. Kumai, yeah. Okay. It was um, it was fascinating. So the the place where the Sibyl, um, and this is I mean so this isn't just kind of fiction. This is there was a real oracle there, yes. right? And so they have kind of the system of caves that are, I'm sure you've seen the pictures of. Oh yes, of, carved out in that kind of that keyhole right. style. Was was this the place where the the Sybil moonlighted with Bruce Willis? Yeah, <laughs> Sybil uh, Shepherd. That's correct. Exactly. She hang, yeah, she hangs out there. Um, but it's a it's, it's a cave system that kind of goes back into the into the hill, and there are kind of uh, intervening kind of windows that kind of pour in light in yeah. an eerie fashion. And then there's a, a chamber in the back of it where mm-hmm. the, the plaques that marks this is where the Sibyl sat. Hmm. And um, so a kind of an, uh, an inner holy of holies, not all that different than say we found at Delphi, which we right. talked about on on the show. And um, yeah, it's and it's near. Um, there is a lake of Avernus there, the Birdless Lake. And then we also went to the uh, Birdless Lake. Birdless Lake. Uh, Tell uh, us more. Well, so Avernus a Ornos okay. uh, in Greek. So, you know, with, without an Ornos, without a. Without so that's a, the a etymology of Avernus. Yes. I did not know right. that. Right. So that it's so bleak, so dark, so full of death, even birds won't fly over it or, or land upon it. And then there's also a, uh, a volcano in that area, uh, whose name I'm forgetting, that you can walk on kind of the, 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 on, on the floor, like in the caldera. And you have that stink of sulfur right. from these vents. So you have Lake Avernus, you have kind of the stink of sulfur, you have this cave system all in this general area. And Sounds like a middle school locker room. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right. All those unwashed uh, shorts. We don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but you have all kind of the elements of, a, um, of an underworld there. Right. Like, you, know, we, the, you know, the stink of sulfur associated with, 
with the, uh, the underworld and right. uh, uh, Hades and hell. A place of darkness or right. torture. Right. And uh, the Birdless Lake, a, a, a cave system where you're literally you know, undergoing a catabasis, a descent. Right. You have all the elements for uh, um, an entrance into hell. Hmm. And so uh, when I was reading you know, these opening lines of, of, uh, of I mean, six, or not, I mean the, the first third of it, it's it reminded me of being right there. Yes, you know, it took you right back there. You can picture that that very specific landscape that right. he's describing. Yeah, yeah. So apparently, the the um, archaeological evidence for this site goes back to the 10th century, so around 900. Oh wow, to, to 850. Yeah, yeah. And why that's interesting? I guess the individual's name was Emil Stevens, 1896, who excavated this. Okay. Why that's interesting is. If Troy fell, uh, what is it, um, 1187, according to Eratosthenes, right? Uh, according to Schliemann, 1230 and Blagan, 1235, 1230. In the, in, a, in the same ballpark. In the same ballpark. Yeah. So 900, it's it's too far away to be Aeneas, but boy, it's awfully close. It right? is, yeah. When, when you're talking about 3,000 years ago, what's 100 years, right? It's a small portion. It's not even 1% of the total. Exactly, right. So you, I think you can start to kind of connect those kinds of dots. I was just talking in my myth class about, um, you know, the, the, the story of the, the nostoi, of the return of, of the heroes. For the vast majority of the Greek kings coming home, it ends badly. Correct. Or they're lost or killed, and how that seems to um, coincide with a decline of the mainland, right. right? And so can that be a coincidence? No, right? no. And, and so... Well, you can never kind of get to the to the you know the the hardcore truth of whatever the Trojan War was or whatever this the leaving Troy and landing in Italy was. You can connect these dots, right? Unless we get more information from somewhere, yeah, which is always possible. But as time goes on, it seems less likely, less likely because yeah. evidence gets lost. I guess it's about three percent of the total. I, I misspoke, but anyway, the Bronze Age settlement was the pit culture people. Pit culture? Yes. They, their culture was centered around small... Eating cherries and spitting them? I oh, don't know. I was thinking small, kind of shallow No, uh, no, that's, the, that's correct. Okay, it yeah. goes It goes uh, with what you were saying about um, all of these uh, vacua, right, around the cave where yeah. the light pours in. But the Greek settlement, 8th century. 8th century. Yeah, so around the time of the settlement of Rome itself, the, right. the legendary, you know, 753. Same time as Homer and Hesiod, too. That's correct. Yeah. So the Greeks landed there, and uh, that's where the West Greek alphabet came, uh, which eventually became the Roman alphabet. Right. So Kumai, I haven't been there. You've yeah. been there. we got to go there together. That would be that'd be That would fun. be excellent. Yeah. And why and how is the Sybil there? Um. Well, I mean, I always took it to be that the Sybil, she kind of, she's a, I'm going to use the word, she's a liminal figure. <laughs> she stands and she sits, you know, very near or at the entrance to the underworld. She's kind of a guardian figure. So she, right. she kind of straddles those two worlds. Right. right. So inspired by the gods below and she speaks to the people above. Right. That's always, did you, did you kind of, did you understand kind of her position there in a, in a, yes. in a different way? What? No, it's just, um, she was a... Um, a spurned lover of uh, Apollo, right? She spurned oh, Apollo's yeah. advances. Yeah, right, the right. Sibylline Oracle. We'd have to cover that with Ovid at some point. Yeah. Uh, but I think we should come up with some kind of a game. A game? Every time you say liminal, yeah. Mark gives away a ratio eight. <laughs> I don't think Mark's going to want to hear you that. You don't think Mark's going to no. go for that? Mark's going to go broke. It might bridle your <laughs> liminality uh, temporarily. Is that That's what this is for. That's like, what this is you're about, You're telling baby. me to rein it in. Rein it in. All right, all right, all right, all right. So what does Lombardo say about those first lines? Yeah, um, so he translates thusly, and I'll take it a little bit further than your uh, than the Latin you read. Aeneas wept as he spoke, and let the fleet glide along until it reached Cume. Keels backed into the long arc of Euboan beach, prows seaward as the anchors bit into the sea's shelving floor. Crews flashed ashore onto the banks of Italy. Some kindled fire from veins of flint, some foraged timber from the wilderness, other lo others located streams. But Aeneas, on a mission of his own, sought the high holy places of Apollo and the Sibyl's deeps, 
The immense caverns where the prophetic god from Delos breathes into her mind and soul and opens the future. Aeneas and his men were soon within, the groves of trivia and under the golden eaves. What's very nicely yeah. read? What, what's a grove of trivia? So trivia is that um, is that the triple goddess. Sometimes she's called triple Hecate or triple Artemis. She's a witch, right? A witch, and she, she's often kind of made up of, pers- of different feminine persona of the underworld. Usually okay. it's, it's Artemis or Diana here, um, Hecate, who we hear about soon, and then also um, a Selene or Luna, the moon. Okay. Yep. So the reason they come here, just to catch the reader, the listener up, is that at the end of book five... Anchises appears in a vision mm-hmm. to Aeneas and says, come to the underworld. This is the place. This is the place. This is where you want to visit me because I have a lot of uh, information to share with you. Right. Now, in, uh, a good question here that I don't think the text answers unless I missed it is, how does Aeneas know? Does Anchises tell him specifically, this is where you need to go? He's got GPS. He's got GPS, right? Uh, on the prow. Uh, yeah. Palinurus had that in his pocket. <laughs> That's when he went over into the drink. <laughs> yeah. Maybe as he <laughs> fell from the deck, he just tossed it back up there. Or he'll right? go to Gumi. Right. <laughs> I think probably what's happening is everybody knows there is an oracle of Apollo at Gume. Okay. That's where the Sibyl is. This is lore that they would have acquired, Aeneas would have acquired in Troy. Right? So this is why he, well, this is why well, he can bounce around from island to island for years, but he, exactly. can, make, he can make a beeline for Kume. Oh, come on, oh, Jeff. I'm sorry. This, is this a question I'm not supposed to ask? Yeah, yeah. this okay. is where they insert in the Latin text, ut dicunt, as they say. As they say. Right. Yeah. Why, is, uh, why is Aeneas able to get to Kume so reliably? It's because everybody knows she's there, ut dicunt, as they say. That's right. Move along. Correct. All right. All right. And now we're introduced to another mythological storyline. Yeah. And that is Daedalus. Daedalus, right. And um, it, Virgil goes on at, at some length, not only talking about Daedalus, but talking about uh, Daedalus's connection to Minos and the Minotaur and Theseus and Ariadne. It's a long digression, and that's always a signal that, okay, this is there's much more than just Virgil taking a break and inserting another story. This means something. Okay. I'm not sure what it means. You're not sure what it means. No, but this is, this is, um, this is heavy. So we, we, uh, Virgil, or sorry, Aeneas finds there that this is the place where Daedalus dedicated his wings um, after Icarus uh, crashes. Uh, so Ovid tells us that uh, Icarus crashes not far off the coast of uh, the boot, the heel of Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, but Daedalus makes it a little further to Kume, and this is where he stops, and he dedicates his wings to Apollo. Now, I thought that he crashed in the Icarian Sea, where the island of Icaria was, Am way I... over in the Hellespont, by the Hellespont. I, I don't, don't remember. Okay. I, I, th- I think he flew over the boot. Right, and said, no, that's a seven and a half that won't fit. <laughs> it's all over the place. So you... you, you but see, I think that he crashed over in the northeast Aegean by the island of Icaria. Okay, I need to check that out. I'm not sure. All right. I mean, I've made probably so many slips in the last 99 episodes. <laughs> Who knows? All right. But it does bear on the question of why does Daedalus dedicate his wings there? Right. So yeah, how does he end up there? I, I mean, the text doesn't really answer answer that. I mean, it's one of these kind of self-fulfilling, well, this is why, this is another reason why this area is sacred, right. because Daedalus stopped there. Um, uh, but I, why? I don't, I don't know. So what is, the, what is the lesson? I'll even use the term moral lesson. What's the moral lesson of the flight of Daedalus and Icarus that the audience could learn from such episodes as... <laughs> you know about Bruegel? Oh, Bruegel. Right, right, right. What's the name of that episode? Um... I don't even remember now. I just I've been so brugled by that episode. <laughs> right. Uh, what are the lessons the story can teach though? Yeah, so what what is it about? It's well, it's about a lot of things. It's okay. about listen listen to your dad. Listen to your dad. Yeah. Icarus would not observe moderation. So right. listen to your dad, right. right? There's the father-son pair. Yeah. 
And don't don't tempt the gods. Don't tempt the gods. Don't um, innovate like the gods. Mm-hmm. At least in Ovid's telling, which I think is by far the best. Yes. Uh, Daedalus says, "I'm going to try to be like the gods, and I'm going to fly." Mm-hmm. Right. And so the flight of Icarus and Daedalus in Bruegel's telling, you know, the guy points up and says, "They must be gods." Right. 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 As, following Ovid, so don't do that. Um, another one would be, I guess that. Uh, if you choose freedom over security, which is what Daedalus does, mm-hmm. right? I have to leave the prison of Crete, but both myself and my son may die in the process. Mm-hmm. If you do that, you have to bear the consequence. Right. And I think there's a kind of that implicit Greek lesson that any kind of heroic act is by default hubris, like whether you really? like it or not, right? So, I mean, so... Any we, heroic act. Well, well, I mean, if you think about how the vast majority of hero tales end for the Greek heroes... It, they end in a pathetic manner, right? Destruction. So I think there's this this notion is that yes, while we celebrate the hero and, and um, we um, we marvel at what they're able to do, simply performing a heroic act, killing the Minotaur, uh, right. getting Medusa, is by default a kind of hubris. You're going too far, mm. and in that kind of Greek calculus, that means you have to be balanced out by a catastrophe. You got to pay the piper. Yeah, and on the graph, then you still wind up at that golden mean. Okay. Right? So I think that. Um, I think mean, Ovid doesn't emphasize that. He, it, the, uh, I think a Roman view of those kinds of things is slightly different. You're right. But I think there is that element at play is that the, um, Daedalus is caught in a bind. To escape Crete, the only way he can escape Crete is to commit an act of hubris. By imitating the gods yes. and flying, because only they are able to do that. Right. You can't do that. So so the connection to Virgil. So w- why does Virgil do this digression? The father-son pair. Okay. Right. Aeneas is being a an obedient son. He is being a son who heeds Anchises' commands for moderation. He's going to seek uh, his father's advice. Mm-hmm. This is quintessentially Roman, right? The yes. most important relationship in Roman culture is that between father, father and, and son. son. Yep. Absolutely important. Mm-hmm. Unlike Daedalus and Icarus, uh, the father dies, the son lives on. Anchises dies. I'm sorry. The son dies, the father lives on, mm-hmm. Daedalus, with grief and sorrow. Anchises dies, Aeneas lives on obedient to his father's wishes. Ah. Maybe that's the contrast that Virgil's establishing. Okay. I, I, no, I like that a lot, right? I do. I, and, and it struck me as I was reading it. Yes, there are these kind of, these parallels be- between the two. Um, but uh, maybe, so Aeneas here is kind of a, the Icarus who listened. Right? right. And so he makes it there. I think it's also an opportunity to bring Apollo into this, you know, um, you know, back into thinking about the Iliad. Apollo is one of the gods who's on the side of the Trojans. Right, um, Virgil even mentions that Apollo was the god who guided the arrow of Paris into the heel of Achilles. Right, right. and so he's a natural um, kind of like guardian waiting for them there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, I think it's maybe just one kind of practical reason that Virgil brings that story into, or brings that that tradition into his story. Right, right. So he already has kind of a a, a protector kind of waiting for him there. Okay, um, makes good sense. Yep. So they spend about 25, uh, Virgil spends 25, 30 lines mm-hmm. on the story of Daedalus and Icarus. And then uh, to read the Krizak translation here. Okay. They would have scanned it all had not Akates brought Deophobi, the priestess, daughter of Glaucus, serving Trivia and Phoebus. They had been sent ahead. Now Glaucus's daughter said, the moment does not call for seeing sights. Instead, kill seven bullocks from an untouched herd and slay as many sheep all rightly picked with no delay. Aeneas acts, she's spoken, and his men obey. So that that reminded me of them encountering the Frieze sculptures in, in Carthage, right? Yes. They're kind of frozen by the uh, right. by the movie that's playing. Aeneas and Trusty uh, Fides Akatis, right? Yep. Trusty Akatis. There, oh, there we are on the on the scenes, yeah. right? There's Troy. And they're about to do that again. Yeah. 
And uh, it's Akadis who brings along this priestess, Deophobi, who mm-hmm. says, no, stop it. This is not time for sightseeing. Get out of the gift shop. Right. Let's move on. Right. So we're still dealing in book six in Aeneid, uh, sorry, in Aeneas, who is um, maybe easily distracted. Perhaps. Stuck, doesn't really quite know how to move forward um, right. there. And so he has to be kind of like, uh, like snap out of it. He needs to be pushed and yep. prodded just a little bit. So we'll see how this, according to uh, Brooks. That's correct. How this changes uh, starting in the next book. That's correct. All right. So yeah, there's, again, in this book, lots of, lots of sacrifices, lots of rituals. You have to kind of uh, cross all your T's and dot all your, your uh, ritual I's before you can move forward. And it starts here. And so, um, yeah, Diophobia says, no, you got to get these kind of animals. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to sacrifice. Let's get this thing moving. Show your piety. Mm -hmm. And then they advance a little bit further to the cave and they hear from within the cry of the virgin, the Sibylline prophetess. Yes. And she, uh, she says it's time, right? It's time. Suddenly before the doors, her face's color failed and she began to pant and heave. This is Krizak. Her hair became a storm. Her heart grew wild as she assumed gigantic form. Speech turned inhuman, for the breathing god drew near with power. Trojan, are you so slow to vow and prayer? Aeneas, do you pause, for till you act, its maw won't open in this great place filled with sacred awe. Very nice. Let me give you Lombardo's rendering of that. Same thing? Yes. As, as, as she's, and as she spoke there before the gates, her color changed, her hair spread out into fiery points. She panted for air, and her breast heaved with feral madness. She was larger than life now, and her voice was no longer human as the god's power took possession of her. Hmm. You like that quite a bit better. I do. I do. Yeah. I, I, I do prefer that. It. Um, I, I want to ask you if you've seen a movie that you haven't seen. Yes. Um, have you seen The Exorcist? No. Okay. But this very much reminds me of, you know, the kind of the general, it's it's famous. The, I know the general story. The, the, the little girl is possessed by uh, yes. a demon, right? Right. And the, she takes on a voice that's not her. Yo, I know. Right. <laughs> Jeff. Right. So that's Creep, re- creeping me out already. It reminds me here of, of um, you know, the the voice that is not the uh, the voice of the, of the yeah. body. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But not malevolent in this case, right? No. Uh, not uh, safe, but it's, not malevolent. It's not safe. And, and so going on with Lombardo, uh, she says, you hesitate to pray. Hesitate, Aeneas of Troy. The great mouths of this thunderstruck hall will not open until you pray. Hmm. Right. So this, this again, we, we talked about. No, we I think we said you know no filmed version of the Aeneid. There's that that old uh, telenovela that from Italy, right? Apparently, but but I mean this is again cinematic. This would make a great scene. Even yeah. just just doing an episode of Book Six would be, would well, be you, incredible. You, you got. Easily 12 films here, right? Oh, yeah. One per book. One per book. People would say, oh, come on. But have you heard of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Of course. How many movies do they have now? The MCU. Oh, 19? One comes out every uh, half an hour. Exactly. (laughs) They're up to 19, something like that. Right. And not all of them winners, I may say. No, no. But like a, a say a, a twelve episode miniseries on some streaming network. Uh, the some BBC imp- has probably done it with horrible uh, graphics already, like <laughs> cartoon ghosts. You know, <laughs> they got some guy in the kitchen with an old teacup and a spoon making this <laughs> making sound the effects. Noise. Right, exactly. So BBC, don't bother. I'd still watch it. I'm sure you would. <laughs> now I'm guessing our audience is big on the BBC. Yeah, I, I like. There's a lot of BBC productions that I like. Nah. No, none of them. Nah. Really? No. There's been some really good stuff in the last. Well, give me an example. Uh, there's a there is a, a series called uh, Happy Valley, 
um, I don't which like is title. fantastic. Okay. Right. It doesn't rely on, it doesn't need goofy special effects, but just tremendous writing and, and acting. Okay. Yeah. I believe that Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister okay. were BBC uh, productions, sure. and those are great. Right, okay. Best television ever. Again, your example goes back, like, decades. In 1982, <laughs> I think, during okay. Thatcher. What's wrong with that? No, nothing wrong with that. It's just interesting that the, 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 there is a there is a, a line at which your knowledge of pop culture clearly stops. Yeah, it's about and, 1991. And that's when you decide nothing can... Nothing I'm not interested in anything else. Okay. You okay. know that when it comes to music. Right, I know that. Right, uh, Nirvana, of course. We don't have to go into that. Right, 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 right. Yep. Speaking of Nirvana... Yes. It's time for the ads. This episode of Odd Nauseam is brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Speaking of Nirvana, I think Kurt Cobain was a huge fan of Hackett Publishing. You think so? I think I've seen photographs of like you know him in the studio and he had some volumes on the back shelf. And right. I, I recognize the translation of the Bacchae. Okay. I recognize Dustin Lombardo's Odyssey. Really? Who knew? Right. Who knew? Right. It's so, a big surprise. So, so I, I think I, I can't really vouch for it. Does that quote unquote band have any kind of um, classical illusions or references in its lyrics? Um... Boy, not that I can think of. On yeah, the top see, of my head. there you go. What? 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 What's, what are you trying to say? I'm trying to say that they weren't that great. Oh, I gotcha. Because gotcha. they don't have any classical illusions. Gotcha. Right. They don't right. have the the Led Zeppelin 14 minute song on Achilles, right? Right. 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 Exactly. Which I could do without. Okay. Right. But that's beside the point. Okay. We're talking about Hackett Publishing. Right. They've been around for 50 years. Actually, th- this year is their 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 anniversary year. The Golden Jubilee. Yep. Um, I love their stuff. You love their stuff. I just read from Lombardo's translation of the Odyssey in my myth class this morning. Mm-hmm. Students love it. Um, now, do they have just one translator per great work, or how do they do that? No. What I love about that company is that they'll have many translators for the same work, so you get this grand variety. So you, even in these episodes we've been doing, we have the Cresec translation of the Aeneid, we have Lombardo's translation. For Ovid, we have Lombardo, and we have the Ambrose. Right. So it's um, the the audience you know, on the show can get a sense of the different flavors, the different mm-hmm. styles of translation. I love that Hackett says, "Yeah, bring it all in." Okay, and uh, um, we'll 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 give it back to you. Yep. And it's not all classics. No. So I'm looking at the website right now. Yep. And I see uh, two new volumes: Seven Myths of Military History by John D. Hostler. That's a new volume out. Right next to it, Destroying to Replace: hmm. Settler Genocides of Indigenous Peoples by Muhammad Adhikari. So this is the critical themes in world history. Yeah. And right next to it, Sanctified Violence, Holy War in World History by Alfred J. Andrea and Andrew Holt. Another one in the critical themes in world history. Fantastic. So, so listener, do yourself a favor. Check out HackettPublishing.com. Scroll through their, their massive uh, library of, of available volumes and find the text that you want. Click on them. And in the coupon code box, you will type in uh, AN2022. And that will get you, Dave, what does that get them? Well, it gets you 20% off and you have to pay three times as much for shipping. No, 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 no. Is that right? No, it's it's free shipping. Oh, free shipping. Sorry. So that's a deal that you can't find at that uh, other kind of watery themed place where lots of people (laughs) like to buy their things. Yes, 20% off and free shipping. And I'd like to also mention that if you're interested in studying Latin, for example, with my uh, LLPSI course, latinperdiem.com slash LLPSI, where I take you ab initio from the ground up in learning Latin so that you can learn to uh, read and scan aloud poetry like Jeff and I do on this program. Hackett is the one who sells all those wonderful books. Right. The Orberg Lingua Latina Per Se uh, Illustrata, the Familia Romana, Roma Eterna, and all the aids and so forth. Hackett is the one who purveys these. Yes. You yeah. go there, you pick up the book, put it in your cart, 
you mosey over to Latin per diem, you think about uh, signing up for my course, and then you do it. You see the it's see a tie the, in. the cross pollination yeah, like that. Yeah, you won't regret it. Check it out. This episode is also brought to you by Racial Coffee. Mark Helweg and his crack team in Portland, Oregon, has figured out how to allow you to have great coffee every morning. Jeff, how is it done? It well, you can. There's two machines. Okay. That, that you can get. You're them. saying you need two machines no, to no, make no, a you, great cup of coffee. No, no, you need one of the two, right? The ratio six, the ratio eight. Um, you, it's very simple. You pour in the the water. You uh, put in your carafe. You use the the, uh, the 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 metal cone, right? And uh, you you fill it with your favorite grounds, or the paper cone, or the paper cone. Yep, right. either will work. Hit that button, and um, then it's it's really complicated. There, the scorch pad goes on. There's there's another kind of attachment. No wait, no wait. It's it's simple. It's simple. It's simple. Jeff. Right? There's three. There's three stages. What are there's, those stages again? The, those three stages are the groom, the no, stew, no, no, no. and the steady. No, you're, you're close. Uh, it's the bloom. The bloom. Followed by the brew. Okay. And then it's the rock steady. Ready. <laughs> ready. Ready. It's yes, ready. Yes. yes. Right. So I'm reading the Racial Coffee uh, Journal. Yeah. It's an online blog. Okay. Which they have on the internet now, and it says begin the brewing cycle by touching the start button. Yeah. That's it. That's it. You're done. Right. You can preheat the carafe with hot water from your sink, a kettle, or by running a brew cycle of any size without coffee. You ever run a brew cycle? I haven't. Well, not, I mean, not, not with this intention here. But no, just but you can just run a brew cycle. You can just run a brew cycle. Without right. coffee, and then it'll heat up your carafe, get everything ready. Oh. Alternately, you can fill the tank beyond your intended batch size and stop the brew cycle when the tank reaches the desired level by touching the button. Did you know when you touch the button, it stops the brew cycle? I didn't. I'm, I'm learning all kinds of stuff. Here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Touch the button, start. Touch the button, stop. Man. Pretty simple, it huh? It is pretty simple. Did you have any coffee this morning? I did. I, I, I fired up my ratio eight this morning, made, mm-hmm. again, as it always does, a consistent, perfect cup of coffee. For you and Mrs. Winkle. Exactly right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I brought it to her. Uh, she was still kind of rousing in, in bed. And, that is so sweet and, and kind of and you. She always, she, she, that's, that's the best way to wake up. Right. Yep. It's the best part of waking up. Wait, no, let's not get in. That's like a phrase from some other uh, like Insta, Insta coffee, yeah, right? Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. it's Dolgers or something yeah, like that. That's right. Haxwell Mouse. So if our listeners want to get one of these machines, the six or the eight, uh, what should they do? They should go to ratiocoffee.com. Mm-hmm. They should take a look at all of the wonderful machines. The six comes in three different styles. It is the stainless steel, the white, and the matte black. Mm-hmm. It's a little more attainable in terms of its price point. Or they can look at the eight, which is a little less attainable. Uh, it's going to take up some prime real estate on your countertop, and it's going to be a gorgeous work of art Yes, at which all of your friends and acquaintances will gawk. That's right. Exactly. So select one, put it into your um, shopping cart, mm-hmm. and at checkout, please enter this coupon code if you want two things, great coffee and to support this humble podcast. Jeff, what's the coupon code? A-N-C-O. A-N-C-O. V4. Ad nauseum. Coffee, Coffee, and then Victor 4. Victor 4, and that will get you at uh, 15% off. 15% off. You will not regret it. No, you will not. All right, Jeff, as we get back into it, mm-hmm. the ads are finished up, yes. and we're taking a, a sharp, close look at book six. What happens next? Well, uh, so the, the Sybil has told uh, Aeneas that he's got to do the right prayers and the right sacrifices before um, anything can move forward. He does this. And that's where the Sybil kind of shrieks forth her prophecy. And when I found, one of the things I found really interesting about this is that while the uh, you know the Delphic Oracle 
um, figures in, in many you know, Greek stories, right? And very often in the mythology, the Delphic Oracle is very riddling, right? It right. gives you kind of a, something, a, a tease that you have to figure out. That's correct. Right? Something but, that's puzzling and ambiguous. Mm-hmm. This Sybil is much more Roman. Okay. It's kind of practical and straightforward. It's like the instruction manual for a new piece of furniture. Yes, exactly right. It's like a, Insert tab A into slot B. Yeah, exactly right. Twist four times. Right. So the Delphic Oracle is more like uh, instructions from Ikea. I knew you were going right there. Right there. No words and just kind of lots of arrows and lots of spinning That's um, correct. Uh, Allen wrenches. Right. right. But <laughs> this one comes in eight different languages. Yes. This is this is And it's very straightforward. You and ever so, try to read those? The other languages? Yeah. No. Like the German instructions for putting together, you know, a piece of furniture or something. I'm usually so angry and frustrated <laughs> by, by, by step three right. that the last thing I want to do is read German. Right. 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 So the first instruction usually is throw this book of instructions away. <laughs> Number two, have your wife retrieve it from the trash can. <laughs> right. Because right. you're going to need it. Right. Yeah. And step, step three, take a Valium. Right. right. <laughs> so I just want to kind of run down kind of what I take to be kind of the main points of the, of okay. the Oracle. And it, um, it's it's quite specific. So the Sybil tells him to Aeneas, your sea wanderings are done. You don't have to worry about bouncing around the Mediterranean anymore. That's a relief because my shoes were getting soggy. Yes. But he says, however, it's going to get worse. Uh-oh. Right. So you've got, now you've got land adventures and it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be easy street. Uh, number two. He says, you will come to Lavinium. She says. Sorry, she says. Right. You'll come to Lavinium, uh, kind of your your fated place, but it's not going to be all roses. Right? Okay. It's going to be very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Suffering ahead. And then she says, I see war. And she sees the, 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 the river Tiber foaming with blood. Mm. And she reminds him that Juno hasn't forgotten about you. She's still against you. And not only that, that um, and that there's going to be another Achilles there's kind of a, waiting for Achilles you. Achilles Altair. Right. So who is this going to turn out to be? Turnus. Turnus, yeah. Yes, right. Who is a fascinating, fascinating character. A fascinating character, one for whom uh, it's not difficult to have a lot of compassion, right. a lot of sympathy. Yeah, he gets he gets cheated out of a lot of things. Shafted. Yep. yep. And number five. Number five, uh, the symbol says, a foreign bride, once again, just like with Helen, is the the cause of a lot of these problems? Mm. So basically, so you're you're going to be living in a rerun, Aeneas, mm. right? The and next the next seven the next six books right. are going to be a kind of a, a Troy redux, a redux, right? But I guess also a chance at a do over, right? Okay. Um, and then number six, she ends on kind of a happier note. Okay. She says, you know, even so, despite all of this, there's salvation waiting for you, and wait for it. She says, this is salvation is going to come from. A Greek city. Huh. You know, the last place a Trojan might look for. Yeah, buck up, little right. camper. Yeah, little she camper. She says something like something that. that. I think it's a, it's, it's a literal translation, right? Okay. A, a little, little camper, right? <laughs> yeah. Can you can you pull that out? What would, what would little camper be? How would you do camper in Latin? Uh, well, I have this. Yeah. Um, a common way to say Boy Scout yeah. is puer explorator. Ah. But in order to get little camper, I would say something like rust. Rusticulus. Hmm. So a rusticus is some guy that lives in the country, a bumpkin. A bumpkin, yeah. And then we would want to make that diminutive. Rusticulus, maybe? Yeah. A little camper. I, I don't know. I like that. I don't know if that word rusticulus is attested, so I'd be more safe and say um, parvulus rusticus. Parvulus rusticus. Uh, rusticus. Yeah, 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 little camper. And I then like that. In, in the vocative, you don't, don't, don't get me started down this line. Parvula rustica. There you go. Right. Little camper. It reminds me, uh, Gaffigan has a whole bit on camping. I bet he does. And he, and he talks about you know, the, the pain of going camping. He right. sees somebody pulling their RV with their RV. Right. He goes, oh, that's what I forgot. My house. <laughs> <laughs> that would have made this comfortable. Right. Oftentimes when people ask me, do you like camping? I say, well, for me, camping is Holiday Inn Express. Yes. I got you. I'm with you there. Anything below that is not camping. It's torture. It's torture. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um... 
But yeah, interesting detail at the end. So Greek a city. Greek city. Salvation comes from the Greek city. Which is a twist. A Trojan is, is not expecting that. No, it's a tease though too, right? It's the way that Virgil keeps us uh, interested until that reveal comes later on. Right. That's right. Exactly. Um, and, and we're still we're still waiting for them to uh, eat their tables, right? Yes, the prophecy. Th- that thing hasn't. That ex- grenade hasn't exploded. Yet no, either. it hasn't. Right. Flatitza. So I think that that's another place. I think where Virgil is much better at Homer, kind of giving these teasers, right, and keeping the audience thinking. Okay, when is that going to happen? On right. Homer edge does, of their seats. Homer doesn't really do that. No. Right. So Aeneas tells the the Sybil that he um, wants to enter into the underworld because he wants to see his father. Correct. Just like his father told him that he had to do in the previous book. And so um, the Sybil says, well, you can do that. He says, actually, getting down into the underworld is quite easy. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's like a, it's a ramp. Yeah, it's, it's, day and night, the door lies open. Something like, dies et noctes, dies et noctes, janua patet, I right. think is pretty close. 24 hours. The underworld is like 7-Eleven. Yep. Right? You get in there easily, but sometimes it's not easy to get out. Exactly. So the escalator going down is always operating. Correct. Smooth, right? But getting out is is not easy. So here comes the... Uh, There's that yellow tape in front of it, right? And some guy with a tool belt <laughs> uh, peering underneath those... Uh, what, what, how would we describe them? They're not really stairs, but they have that terrible, painful grid on them. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, He's exactly. trying to get it running so you can get back out. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's always going to be broken down. Right. Plus, yeah. if I may, yes. plus your cart loaded with luggage, you know, will not fit in the elevator. Never. So there's nothing you can do. You're stuck there. Yep, exactly right. And so here, this is the... This is the Hotel California, right? That's right. Like you can check out anytime you want. You just can never leave. You can never leave. Right. Right. What time is check out? It's anytime. Anytime. But you're stuck. You're stuck. Yep. So um, so uh, the civil goes further and says, okay, this is what you need to do if you really want to do this. You right. need to, to get to the entrance. You have to go through this dark wooded grove. Mm-hmm. And what you're looking for is a, is a sacred tree uh, in which glitters a golden bough. Mm. And uh, that's kind of your ticket. Right, mm-hmm. So you need to go uh, uh, clamber up and grab that. And this bow is sacred to Persephone? Yes, to Persephone. Proserpina. Right? Proserpina. Proserpina is the Roman yeah, Persephone. Yep. Maybe we should read a little bit of the Latin there about yeah. the golden bow and then a little bit of the actual translation from Lombardo. Let's do it. Okay, so we're starting in here at line 142. non alter. Aurreus et simili frondescit virga metallo, ergalte vestig aculis et rita repertum, carpet menu nam quip sevolens facalisque sequetur. Very nice. Thank you, Jeff. You no. know, you don't have to do that each time. I do. I, I'm always impressed. After I scolded you last time. Did with you my, scold me? No, I wasn't scolding. I just, I had hurt feelings and indignation. You oh, know, really? You know, I'm a sensitive guy. Oh, that's right. When I didn't say it. Yes, that's right. That's exactly yes. Right. right? Well, um, I'm always trying to keep you happy. I appreciate Dave. it. All right. So now, before I give Lombardo's translation... I think, in many ways, this is the key passage, or or it's the it's of the book or of the epic. It, I, in some ways, both. Certainly, the book. Really, right? But and uh, but this is kind of part one of a kind of a two part uh, key scene. All right. So um, here's the translation. So fair Proserpina decree, decrees it be brought to her as a gift, talking about the the golden bough. Mm-hmm. When one bough is torn away, another grows in its place and leaves out in gold. So it's kind of like a it's like you you pull the tab to kind of your like I'm next in line at the butcher. That's correct. The next one comes keeps out. coming. Just keeps, keeps coming, coming back. Right. I was thinking about the the heads, you know, of the hydra. Oh, right. You chop one off and none grow back. There you go. There you go. Um, search it out with your deepest gaze. And when you find it, pluck it with your hand. It will come off easily of itself if the fates call you. Hmm. Otherwise, you will not wrench it off by force or cut it with steel. So this is like Thor's hammer. Hmm. If it huh? belongs to you, 
You haven't been watching your MCU. I've, I've been, I've been. Don't you have an extra ten hours a day? I don't. So only he can pick up the hammer, right? That's correct. Right, right. Or maybe five or six other characters that they decide to let pick up the hammer to make it more interesting, right? Or to just to get to the end of the scene, correct? <laughs> right. But right. it's this golden bow is like that. If it wants to go with the plucker, mm-hmm. it will let itself be plucked. Yes. Now, why do I think this is so key? Yeah, I was just going to ask. It's because. Um, we'll watch what happens when Aeneas actually finds the bow and what happens when he, when he breaks it off. Hmm. Right. So, um, and I would, for, for years, I thought this was, this was like my hot take. I thought this, oh, this is so key. Okay. This was one of those things where you rushed to the door of your grad school advisor and banged on it and said, you know, Helrica, Helrica, I've got it. No one has ever noticed this. Exactly. Right before I said, oh my gosh. And, and, and this is, this is, this is, this is huge. Right. And then of course you do a quick, uh, like JSTOR search. You find like 40 other people have been talking about this. Right. Right. And some German dissertation of 500 pages from 1827. Yeah. Has already covered it. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Helmut. (laughs) Helmut Nettleship, maybe. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So this has been argued about a lot, but okay. I still think it's a very uh, key thing. So mm-hmm. Sybil tells him, when you find the bow, it basically, if you're called by fate, it's basically going to drop into your hands. Mm-hmm. Right. Now let's, we'll, um, we'll hang on to it, but okay. let's watch what happens. But well, speaking of hanging on, yeah. though, uh, Virgil has, I'm sorry, Aeneas has not a great track record with uh, bow plucking. Do you remember book three? No. What do you, I'm, what what, do you, when he was in Thrace and he began plucking little shoots out of the ground. Oh, is that when the ground started bleeding? Polydorus. Yes. Yeah. Right. So if I were Aeneas, I wouldn't be so happy. I got to pull another bow. Yeah. It didn't go so well the first time. Interesting. I think these, we, we might argue it doesn't go great the second yeah, time. These arboreal vegetative errands, they don't turn out well. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Right. I didn't even think of that. That's that's a nice that's a nice link, though. He has a he has a bad a bad history when it comes to plucking. Yes, he's had a bad bout with bows. <laughs> that's right. So the Golden Bow, maybe our audience will be familiar with it. The Fraser Book. The Fraser Book, right? Which came out, uh, was published in 1890. A long time ago. Yep. Can Um, you give us the the briefest of synopses on that? Right. So it was a a famous and very controversial book in its time where um, Fraser was kind of the first one to really write kind of a popular um, comparative religion and comparative mythology text um, and kind of of bill it for the masses. And uh, he collects lot legends, you know, from around the world, and particularly focused on myths of kind of death and resurrection. He's a proto Campbell, is that a way? Yes, to very him? much so, very much like a proto Campbell. And it caused a huge stir in the late nineteenth century when he lumped in uh, the Christian story, okay, the death and resurrection of Christ, as kind of another one of these death and resurrection motifs, and ruffled a lot of feathers. And that is in the Golden Bow by the, James James G. Fraser, yes, British academic, right? Yep. Have you read the book? I've read uh, bits and pieces of what, it. What's your take? What's your um, hot take? I think, you know, um, broadly speaking, he's one of those that kind of pushed a necessary domino. Okay. Um, I think his, 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 his work is, is, is filled with lots of flaws and misreadings. Okay. But those are often kind of the starting points for a, a picture that becomes clearer down the line. That's very well said. Right. So Very well said. Um, a very, very important book. Okay. If not um, completely persuasive. Right. Yeah. Right. So when we covered um, what the the Jung and the Restless, yeah. which was a look at Joseph Campbell's mythological theories, yes. this is a natural follow up to what Fraser had done earlier. Exactly right. Why, why did he call it the Golden Bow? Do you know what was the reason behind it? How does that stand for the argument? I think that he he chose it because um, uh, Aeneas taking the Golden Bow is kind of his ticket into the underworld. So Aeneas is kind of a natural death and resurrection figure. Okay. So it's a uh, I'm not going to use the L word, but it's it's one it's the it's the piece by which you kind of cross these boundaries back. And forth. Right. Yep. 
I think that's the sense of it, right? Okay. And uh, Jung himself, um, I, I read a biography of him about a year ago. He was absolutely obsessed with this book. Really? And so, I mean, there you have the connection to Campbell. It's all kind of mm. part of a mm-hmm. of a larger piece. Yeah. And nil novi sub solem, right? Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Now, um, the Sybil also tells uh, Aeneas that, okay, you've got to do that. you got to get the golden bob. He says, also... As you're on the way there, you're going to find the body of one of your comrades that you lost. You're not even aware that you lost him, mm. and you have to make sure that you bury that body and do the the the, the proper rituals. Yes, the, right? be pious. At so that this point. is the this is the uh, well an Elpinor tag, right? Correct. Right, and it's Palinurus. It's uh, it's Messinus. Oh, it's Messinus. Yes. So Messinus. Where is Palinurus? Is the land is the landscape of the underworld littered with dead bodies? I think that I don't know, but I think that would that would have been. A better um, oh, no. plot move. You're gonna arm, I do. armchair poet again on maybe, Virgil. Maybe just a little bit, because it's um, it's odd what he finds out. So Messenus is um, is Aeneas's trumpeter. Yes, right? every good you know king leader needs a trumpeter. Right, right. You, do you have one? You keep on retainer. I, if I if I could afford a trumpeter to keep on retainer, my middle son just took up the trumpet. And oh, that's it's, great. It's, no, it's brutal. No. Oh, he's flatting all over the house. Oh, it's <laughs> you know what they say about the violin? What? You shouldn't be allowed to play it until you're expert. <laughs> exactly. That's true of most instruments. Yeah, right? I think right. so too. Right. So we learn. Um, although I think Virgil adds a kind of like a, an ut dicunt, right? Kind of almost like shedding some doubt on the story. Right. But apparently, Messina had blown a conch shell. Oh, you never want to do that. What did he get? A kind of a sepsis from that? Was it contaminated? No, he he an infection. He riled up Triton. Oh, like, you know, Mr. Conch shell himself. You know? Right. Isn't it, isn't it pronounced conch? Conch? You conch? keep saying conch. Isn't, it, isn't that, is that conch? It's conch? not conch. Okay. It's conch. All right, it's conch. That sounds weird People to me. People don't eat conch fritters. Right. So it's, it's conch. I'm gonna I'm gonna dilate on this a, a bit because this is as bad as Macabre. <laughs> I remember just reading a Lord of the Flies in high school. And, yes. And I think it's like you know, to speak, you What's have to hold guy's the name? conch. Piggy. Piggy. Yes. And Ralph and Jack. Right. They grab the conch shell. The conch. All right. I'll say conch from here on. I'm, no, it just it sounds extra weird to okay. me. Okay. All right. So he, he blows a blast on the conch, and that gets the attention of, of, of Triton. Right. Who is the, he's the conch master. He's the conch master. Right. And he, uh, Virgil suggests that he, uh, Triton takes it as a challenge. Okay. Right. It's, and it's, so they have a conch off? They do have a conch. <laughs> actually, they don't have a conch off. He kind of, he nips it in the bud and just simply drowns Mycenaeus. Like, how dare you conch yeah, in they, my presence? They don't. They don't have any kind of a competition. No, there's no conking around. There's I, a, yeah. I'm pretty sure Konkoff won the World Chess Championship <laughs> in 1964. <laughs> Vladimir Konkov? Vladimir Konkov. Oh, the guy was unstoppable. He's never been heard of since, right? <laughs> uh, so I, it felt a little stitched on. Okay. Right? I think it would have been better if it was Palinurus' body who washes up on the shore, right? You just don't You just don't like variety and untied I love variety, but, it, ends. It, but it, has to, it has to fit. This okay. felt this felt forced. Like it's almost like Virgil said, "Oh, you know, Cape Messinum is nearby. I've got to work this in." Right? Well, let's it, talk about that for a moment. Okay, right? Messinum was the town that was the uh, it was the southern port for the entire Roman navy. Yeah, right there in the Bay of Naples. Right? That's right, right. I think it was Messinum to which uh, Pliny the Elder sailed, isn't it? He, he sailed from that to Pompeii. It's, right it, it, it to was rescue the, people. This vantage point where Pliny the Younger saw the whole thing happen. Correct. Yes. So that's an important town. We yeah. need to have something uh, significant as to why it's named that. It's just it, it it just feels like he threw it in. I think that if Virgil um, uh, had you know the time to do a little bit of I see uh, touch up, 
this is one place where he might have smoothed that out. Or he okay. said, oh, or he would say, oh, Palinurus would work much better here. Well, maybe you're right. So be it. And I don't like, you know, I don't like Triton because he's the he's the Roman Aquaman. Yeah. And I don't like Aquaman. He is the son, is he not, of uh, Neptune and, yes. and Amphitryo? Yes, exactly yes. right, right. And you don't like him. Well, I mean, he's kind of, he's he comes because he's a pretty boy fountain decoration. Right. right? He blows his conch. Isn't isn't he in the Piazza Navona? Uh, uh, the Bernini sculpture in the Piazza Navona? Is yeah. That, is that Triton? I think it is. If not there, there is a Triton fountain where the water spraying up from. That's right. Out of, out, out of his conch. You don't care for him. No, I don't care for him. He's just kind of, you know, he can blow, he can blow that, that thing and then all the fish come to his, his, uh, his side. But, you mm. know, it's like Aquaman. What do you, what, you know, where do you go from there? Right. How are you going to fight crime? See, but that's <laughs> that's lodged now in your subconscious. <laughs> you won't be able to forget it. Oh, man. Can we move on from All right. this? All right. Okay. So, so he, he receives the news, mm-hmm. Aeneas does, from the Sybil, and he's uh, he's not very happy about it. No, right? he's, he's not very happy about Aeneas it. Aeneas maisto de fixus lumina vultu, right? With downcast eyes, he stood there. He's sad, right? Oh, he's mopey again. He's Wait, mopey. Th- this is not new. He's nothing but mopey. Oh, boy, you really uh, <laughs> don't like this epic, do you? Well, I'm eager because of the Otis quote that I'm ready to kind of, and he needs to kind of leave some of that behind. Okay. That's it. And to grow up a little grow bit. Grow up a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So he goes into the woods, mm-hmm. right? He encounters uh, Messanus. Finds the body. He finds the body on the shore before right. they enter the Okay. Grove, All right. right. Yeah. And what does he do with the body? Well, they do a, a huge, a long, elaborate funeral rite. You know, Virgil mm. loves these kinds of scenes, mm-hmm. and I think yeah, he's emphasizing that um, Aeneas is the proper. Uh, ancestor, because he does all of these things correctly. That's right. He keeps the the pox deorum. Yeah. And who is the correspondent in Virgil's own time? Who took on the mantle of Pontifex Maximus when he had already become uh, princeps? Right. Mm-hmm. Augustus. Augustus. Yeah. Right. So it's a little. I think it's lots of tips of the cap. Um, right. Uh, towards Augustus. To Augustus's great pietas. Right. But without, to Virgil's credit, without becoming just a, a sycophant. Right. Right. He, uh, he, um, I, I think he tempers that. Otherwise, I, I think this would be a much lesser poem. Okay. Right. So there's a little praise for the guy. Okay. Now, um, so he enters into the woods now. Mm-hmm. This is where it gets really kind of, kind of cool. Right. right. So he's looking for the golden bough and he notices that uh, there's a huge flock of doves flying above him. And he immediately makes the connection. The dove is one of the symbols of uh, Venus. That's right? right. And Venus. They, they pull her chariot. Yes. There you go. Right. Which seems very... Isn't uh, that incredible? It is incredible. I, I like that. The Greeks were so imaginative. Right. How could doves pull a chariot? <laughs> right, right, right. I don't think doves could pull a bicycle. No, exactly. But you know, the gods play by their own rules. That's right. These are not the questions you ask. Right. So he sees a flock of doves flying and he follows them and they alight upon this this tree uh, and basically saying, hey... You know, climb here, pluck here, mm-hmm. and he sees the uh, he sees the the glittering bough in the trees. He smells the sulfurous stink of Avernus nearby, so he's kind of it's awful. It is awful. Did you climb any trees as a child? Oh, I love climbing trees. I did too. I still I probably shouldn't do it because I'm an old man. Yes, you are. But uh, uh, <laughs> but I loved climbing trees. Yeah, so it was a lot of fun, and there were particular trees, particular boughs and crotches of trees. That had a kind of memory attached to them, right? As a child, you'd oh. re- return to it repeatedly, and you knew the contours of the of course. the knots and the branches and so forth. And you carve your name into it. Yes, so you did is, some of that. Is, this is my tree. Right. And yeah. you were, you know, a strong young kid. You'd fall out. No big deal. Pick yourself right back up again like yep. Daffy Duck and continue and on. Continue on. Right. Yeah. So Aeneas is, is uh, he's, he's going to become, a, he has to clamber up a tree here. Mm-hmm. And then here's the... Like this is the key thing. This is the okay. key word. We're right? ready. Do we right. want to have a, a pregnant pause while we wait for it? Um. So he, he uh, I'll, I'll, I'll plug one in. All right. So he climbs up and he grabs the bow to pluck it, 
and Virgil uses one word, which I think is 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 really key. He says that when he plucks the bow, the bow kuntantem, it resists, oh. and so it's. It's uh, against, of course, what the Sybil said. The Sybil said, basically, if fate is on your side, it's going to fall into your hands. Right. He gets the bow, but it resists. Mm. And so... Or hesitates. It hesitates. It delays. It delays, just a right? little bit. Just a little bit. Mm. And so, um, so as like I, I, I told you, like in my Google, uh, my JSTOR search, many, many uh, scholars have puzzled over this, what exactly this means. Mm. Some have said, this is something that if Virgil went back, he'd say, oh, no, no I didn't mean that. I'll, I'll change that. Uh, I don't think so. I think it's key. I think well, we were just talking about that. You know, the, the poem is in praise of Augustus. It's in praise of Rome, mm-hmm. but of it's, the Pax Augusta. Of the Pax Augusta, but it's also very it's 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 very honest about uh, the violence and the bloodshed, um, mm. the awfulness that's necessary to establish this. And so I think the Cunctantum is saying that Virgil is called by fate. However, there's a downside. There's a downside. So we're going to fight about this okay. when we get to the end of the epic because I've thought about this a lot. And although I may be wrong, I'm often wrong, but never lacking in confidence. So I'm pretty sure that uh, that is too modern an interpretation. The idea that um, Virgil was uh, deeply divided. It's a revisionist reading of the Aeneid that Virgil was actually deeply divided about the Pax Augusta. Hmm. I don't think so. I think he's fully on board with what uh, Augustus accomplished. So how do you explain this? I don't have to until we get to the end of book 12. Oh, my gosh. Right, so, but by that time, we've forgotten all about it. <laughs> I don't think so. All right. But that is really important, and yeah. it's really interesting. So if Cunctantem is uh, meant by Virgil to indicate that perhaps Aeneas isn't Fortune's favorite, just like yes. Augustus is not Fortune's favorite, then I'm going to have a hard time. Okay. I'm gonna have a hard time interpreting it that way. Okay. All right. But then you need to you need to answer it though. I gotta take it I gotta take it into account. Okay. For sure. Right. For sure. The main the main point is um, post Enlightenment Democrats, which almost everybody is, right? Very uncomfortable with the monarchy and the the successful um, exercise of state power. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I share those prejudices. Yeah. I'm just saying I don't think in, uh, Virgil felt that way. I, I mean, could you, I mean, at the very least, kind of just see this as kind of, a, uh, it's like the, um, when, it, if we accept that Virgil had an aversion to war. Yes. He, and he admits very early in the epic that um, uh, this is a, uh, this is a fate that is um, soaked in blood. Right. Right. Could not the Kung Tantum just simply be another kind of nod towards. A slight nod. A slight saying that this is fate, but it's, it's, it's not easy. Yeah, the come, losers have it hard. The losers have it hard, right? And uh, and and Aeneas says the winner has it hard. Yeah, it's a popular right. interpretation. It may be right. I'm right. not convinced. Okay, we have to have a little Darius and Antellus at the end. Yeah. Okay, Dave, we're up against the clock. Yes, we got to get out of here. But let's just let's just kind of remind the audience, set the scene of where we're at. So uh, Aeneas has the bow Correct. in hand. He's the got the golden bow. He's got the golden ticket, um, and he approaches the entrance to the underworld. Right, and the so gates. He, gets, he sees the, the, the cave, he hears the howling of the dogs, he, the ground trembles as he makes kind of his final prayers. And uh, the next time we, we, uh, we, get to, we get back to the Aeneid, we're going to see him descend into the underworld. We're going to take the escalator, take the escalator. right from the food court yep. down to the shoe store. Exactly, <laughs> exactly <laughs> and right. And see what's happening. <laughs> That's right, right. It's going to be good stuff. It is. But 
we got to get out of here. Okay, let's say some thank yous. Yes. Shall we do that? Yes. Thanks always to Mishka. That's right. Our wonderful engineer. She puts this together. Sometimes on a short time schedule, yes. we're not always the most uh, considerate, right? Just get this done. Get this done. Please. And even so, she kind of, she sands off the rough edges. Amazing. Yep. You know, one comment I routinely hear. What's that? From people who... Though they don't send shout outs, yeah. do listen. Mm-hmm. They say the sound quality is really good. Yeah. And I'm so pleased with that. Because yeah. when we started, we thought, we had no idea what we're doing. Right. But a couple of decent microphones. Makes right? it sound like we know what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and a great sound engineer <laughs> makes it fantastic. Yep. Thanks also to uh, Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin for the music. Um, never ceases to impress me. Oh, it's incredible. Yep, it yeah. shreds. Yeah, yeah if it's you great. if you like that kind of high speed Eddie Van Halen with a little bit of blues and good compositions, you know that bass line in the intro and the outro music. Uh, Ken put that together. It's really nice. It's amazing. So hey, if you want to get in touch with us, if you want a shout out. Um, You're write, sounding a little sore, Winkle. No, I'm, I'm fine. Okay. I'm good. I'm good. You can write to us. All right. Write to Dave at DaveAdNauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or you can also write to me. Jeff at AdNauseum.com. Don't forget the V. That's right. Now, next week, we're going to take a little kind of fun detour. Yes, we are. Right. We're going to talk about... Well, it's going to be a detour. Yeah. What? I don't know if it's going to be fun. Oh, it's going to be fun. <laughs> come on. Come along. We're going to be talking about classical illusions in popular music, right? Uh, popular music, you mean... Things that were written in Vienna around the 1840s? No, 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 no. Talking uh, music that's been written uh, from the 1960s on. Oh, really? Right. Pop, rock. Okay. Right. And we're going right. to look at the, the good, the bad, and the ridiculous. Okay. Yeah. And we're going to try to break it down and interpret it and kind of see what's good and what's not. Break it down old school? Old school. Right. And then after that, we'll get back to um, book six of the Indian. But Do we have a working title for that episode? For the, the, the pop song the one? The pop music classical I, reference I, I, one? I haven't thought about it. You, you got one, don't you? No, I no? don't. Oh, but just... I'm going to put something together. All right. I don't think we did so great with that Royal Boxing Day. What's up with that? Oh, it was fine. People people, people, people tuned in. Numbers okay. are going up and it, it's fine. All right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, Dave, I believe you have our gustatory parting shot. I do. And this comes from someone named uh, Chris Fabry from a book called The Promise of Jesse Woods. I like this because it has a classical illusion it in it. It does. In I, fact, that's why I like it the best. Yes. He says, the cakes and pies and casseroles beckoned like gastronomic sirens, and there was no one to lash me to the mast. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.